Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Tonight on The Readout. Justice is juxtaposition enough. Justice for all, just ain't specific enough. One son died, the spirit is revisiting us. True and living, living in us. Resistance is us. A moral Monday rally in Nashville today to protest the deadly acceleration of the gun culture in the U.S. And as more children are killed in mass shootings this weekend, the NRA meets to celebrate weapons of death. Also tonight, Michael Cohen joins me to talk about what weaponization of government really looks like. As Jim Jordan plays make-believe on the issue in an embarrassing field hearing of the once respected House Judiciary Committee. Plus, Justice Clarence Thomas is promising to fix his financial irregularities as a whole new set of questions come to light. And we begin tonight with more young Americans fighting for their lives as this country's massacre epidemic rages on. Following a weekend of bloodshed and a spate of mass shootings, less than three weeks since the children of, Nashville's, of, the children of Nashville were buried, this is the feeling of an accelerating gun culture and the carnage and death that comes with it. The fear, the violence, they can feel unstoppable, even all-consuming at times. And it isn't just because of America's indifference to gun violence. It's far more than that. It feels like parts of this country are engaged in a celebration of gun violence, a veneration and devotion that has turned America into the most heavily armed civilian population in the world and a virtual shooting gallery. Americans buy millions of guns a month and keep buying more feeding a booming industry that can't market their bloody trade in other parts of the world where they have actual gun laws. So they pump all their resources into fostering America's sick obsession. The National Rifle Association shares that agenda, promoting not just guns, but the reckless permission to use them legally on fellow Americans with barely a second thought. Want to talk about grooming? Over the weekend, photographs by Reuters spread online showing children holding guns at the NRA's annual convention last weekend, including this image of a six-year-old pointing a firearm directly at the camera. This is a disturbing image, no doubt. But perhaps what's more disturbing is how adults are coaching their kids to worship weapons of war. But it shouldn't surprise us, given how Republican governors like Kristi Noem think guns and not rattles belong in a one-year-old's hands. Little Miss Addie who is almost two, and Branch, who's just a few months old, they have brought us so much joy. Now, Addie, who, you know, soon will need them, I want to reassure you, she already has a shotgun and she already has a rifle. And she's got a little pony named Sparkles, too, so the girl is set up. And the crowd went wild for the grooming. Even as Americans, far from the political podiums, face violence in their everyday lives. Last week in Missouri, a 16-year-old boy named Ralph Yarl was shot by a homeowner after mistakenly arriving at the wrong address while attempting to pick up his younger siblings. Just across the Mississippi River in Tennessee, the Republican supermajority's response to a recent school shooting is a bill to arm teachers. In Louisville, two people are dead after a shooting at a park on Saturday night, only five days after another mass shooting in the same city 
in which five people died. Also on Saturday night, a shooting in Alabama at a crowded Sweet 16 birthday party. Four people were killed and 28 others were injured, some critically. We know these kinds of massacres can occur anywhere, everywhere, in a small, rural, close-knit town like Dadeville, Alabama even, where about 3,000 people live. Dadeville is in Tallapalooza County, where in 2022, 77% of its voters voted to reelect Alabama Governor Kay Ivey, a Republican endorsed by the NRA, who signed a permitless carry bill into law and who cruised to victory using campaign ads like this one. Kay kicked so much liberal butt, I bet her legs tired. No step too high for a high stepper. Yes, ma'am. That's right. What does that mean anyway? I don't know, but I like it. Okay, that, that's sick. The youth-led movement to put people over guns has its eye on Kay Ivey and Christy Nome and Greg Abbott and every other Republican who values weapons over human lives. Their cry? Vote them all out! Which is exactly what protesters alongside national faith leader Bishop William Barber were marching for in Tennessee today. While kids are dying, while students are being told to run, hide, and fight, the so-called solution our lawmakers are offering is to put more guns in more places. We want safe schools, not fortresses. We want to be teachers, not soldiers. Joining me now is Reverend Mark Thompson, who participated in today's Moral Monday March in Nashville. Reverend Al Sharpton, president of the National Action Network and host of Politics Nation. And gun safety advocate Fred Guttenberg, who lost his 14-year-old daughter, Jamie, in the 2018 mass shooting in Parkland, Florida. He's the co-author of the forthcoming book, American Carnage, Shattering the Myths that Fuel Gun Violence. Thank you all for being here, Mark. Give us a sense of what went on today. Well, right now I'm standing outside on the balcony of the House chamber where they are deliberating this piece of legislation um, in order uh, to um, um, arm teachers with guns. You know, police officers have to check their gun in when they go into the squad room. Correctional officers have to check check their gun in. Um, And so this is going to be a very serious debate tonight. Nobody wants to support arming teachers, but the Tennessee legislature is prepared to do that. Just over my shoulder is one of the caskets we tried to carry into the chamber. We wanted Reverend Barber was not allowed to do that. But a, a good crowd today to stand against this gun violence and other forms of death. Um, this is a baby casket. Those were babies that were killed in this school here in Nashville. And so people are um, are are demonstrating. The police are bothering me. I'm doing a live. I'm doing a live on MSNBC, sir. I'm live on MSNBC. Okay. Joy, I, I'll move it. I'll be done in a minute. I'll be done in a minute. All right. Uh, what is going on there, Mark? Can we go back to Mark so I can see what's going on over there with him? What is happening? They gave they gave me permission. You see the troopers going back in. They gave mm-hmm. me permission to stand out here. Then they came out here and tried to revoke permission just now. That's all you just heard. So I told the gentleman I was live on television. I guess he heard that and decided mm-hmm. to go away. So maybe, it's, maybe. It's, it's, it's like that up here. Yeah, maybe he didn't, <laughs> he didn't like what you're saying. Rev, Rev, let me come to you for a moment because, you know, the people who... Um, preach this kind of worship of firearms, also call themselves Christians. And they wrap their love of guns in supposedly their love of the Lord. These two things are incompatible to in the theology I grew up in. Well, it's not only incompatible, it's the height of hypocrisy. You know, last week, ironically, when we had National Action Network's convention, it was at the same time they were having the NRA convention. Mm -hmm. And Vice President Harris, who keynoted for us Friday, 
the whole subject was on gun control. And we had faith leaders, the Bishop of the AME Church, uh, Bishop Richardson and, and uh, Bishop uh, 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 J.R. Sheard and others saying we've got to deal with where the moral compasses of the black church, as well as work with other ecumenical how can you have six-year-old children, as you just saw at the NRA convention, holding up a gun, mm-hmm. and then you talk about you uh, celebrating the Prince of Peace? So I think that one of the key things that we're doing with Nash Action Network and faith leaders in the black church is saying this must become the issue, the gun control and what we're doing in terms of criminal justice. Because don't forget, Tyrese Nichols' trial is coming up. We're going to be spending right. a lot of time in Tennessee We've got to make this the issues where we set the tone rather than the politicians set the tone for us. That has to be what the 24 race is about. Yeah, I mean, the, the Tennessee, um, where Mark is right now, is one of the states that do not require concealed carry permits. We're going to put the, the map up. And the, that map that you're seeing right there, Fred Guttenberg, that it, had, it includes your home state of Florida. It corresponds okay. in many ways. Florida's not on the top 10 list with the states with the highest number of gun deaths. So you look at the states with the highest number of gun deaths, nine out of 10 are red states. They are states that have very lax gun laws. Um, they allow people to carry and sometimes without a concealed carry permit and sometimes open carry. It is, it's like that we're creating this atmosphere where certain Americans think that we should all just be prepared to die at any time, to watch our children die, to watch our parents die at the store, to just die everywhere. And they want that culture. I don't understand it. Do you? Well, I actually do understand it. Um, and let's start the NRA convention, which was, in fact, a fraud. It was another in a long line of lies. Why do I say that? Because while they were glorifying and selling gun violence, you were not allowed in there with a gun. Hmm. So it was, in fact, another fraud. People talking tough, people inciting, people exciting others to do wicked, evil things, but just not near them. And maybe, you know, we saw Governor Lee in Tennessee over the past week, change his tune a bit on gun violence because it touched him personally. I'm not surprised by any of these people. Um, They are liars. And it is time we stop listening to the liars. I just want to say this. My daughter in three months would be 19 years old. And so if you look at the past 19 years in this country, the understanding of gun violence and where it is today is clear. In 2003, when she was born, there were about 200 million weapons in America, and AR-15s were about just under 2% of all guns sold. If you go to 2018, when my daughter was killed, there were about 300 million weapons in America. If you go to today, there's over 400 million plus ghost guns. But the tragic thing is, instead of being under 2% of all weapons sold, the AR-15 is now 25% Mm. of all weapons sold. Understanding gun violence, it's easy. It's in the numbers. We were conned. I think we were. And, you know, Reverend Sharpton, you know, I think about the Trayvon Martin case, the, the, what the NRA has done, they can't sell these weapons in Europe because Europe actually has gun laws. Exactly. You know, they're forcing them on Mexico. Mexico has one gun shop and it's controlled by the army. You can the way that they're getting the cartels are getting those guns is from the United States. The way the Caribbean is flooded with guns, it's guns from here. They're selling those guns here and they're getting people to buy more and more and more because they can't sell internationally. But what they're also doing with these stand your ground laws, we saw it in the Trayvon Martin case. We're seeing it in the case of young 
Ralph Yarl, right. is they're saying, not only do we want you to buy more and more guns, we can't sell them anywhere else, we're going to sell them to you, but we want you to feel freer to use it. We want you to feel freer. Go ahead and take that gun out and shoot, because we're going to pass laws that say you can shoot someone and get away with it. That is the atmosphere in which Ralph Yarl gets shot. And when you take away the penalty, when you take away the, the punishment, you're d- developing a society that will become totally unhinged because they feel they will not have to pay. That's right. Uh, as in the case of Zimmerman, uh, you br- bringing all these cases. Now, to think what happened to this young man uh, in Missouri and they let the guy go. Now they right. rearrest him later. But why did you let him go? It is. And, and to think of what happened in Tennessee. I, I was talking to Tyree Nichols parents about it. They come up to the convention. Think what happened in Tennessee with, with the school. You're talking about young white children. There was one black security guard. The right. other five were white. Three nine-year-old white children. And the Tennessee state legislature is going to vote against people that look like their own kids. That's right. This is how out of control this is. And, and claim that prayer in school will help. That's a Christian school. So they obviously had prayer. Right. They had a security guard. They still ended up with six people dead. Mark Thompson, you also have the, in this culture, because I think the cultural argument is important to make. In Texas right now, on the orders of Tucker Carlson of Fox News, Governor Greg Abbott is about to pardon a man who shot a Black Lives Matter protester. Again, you have all these laws being passed. Go ahead and hit that protester with your car. Go ahead and take out your gun and shoot. The governor will pardon you. Let me read you some of what this man, Daniel Perry, was posting before this uh, shooting took place. I might have to kill a few people on my way to work. They're rioting outside my apartment complex. That's on May 31st. On June 1st, Black Lives Matter is racist to white people. It is official. I am racist because I do not agree with people acting like animals at the zoo. Jan- Daniel, uh, June 1st again. Now it is my turn to get banned from Facebook by comparing the Black Lives Matter movement to a full zoo full of monkeys that are freaking flipping, flinging their S-H-I-T. So the, the cultural part, Mark, I think is important to get at because you have the right, the Republican Party, Fox News, all saying buy more guns and then use them. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you have as Reverend Sharpton said, you have people of all races. These are white children that were killed here in Tennessee, uh, all dying because of an obsolete amendment that was established, really. People need to read the history. Do your homework, folks. The Hidden History of the Second Amendment by Professor Carl T. Bogus. An amendment, the Second Amendment, was meant to prevent slave insurrections and slave rebellions. That is why people are losing nothing. There was no individual right. That's what it was really about. They didn't want to give up their arms to the to the state to fight the British because they needed to keep arms, in the words of Patrick Henry, to fight against our insurrections on the plantation. So this is what this is really all about. It, it is it is a depraved culture. It is it is tragic. And, and might I also say, you know, even we have to tie all this up. The gun violence is in the streets, the gun violence in the school, the gun violence on the part of the police. Grand jury today decided not to charge eight officers who fired 96 shots at Jalen Walker last June and hit him 46 times and killed him. So this this gun culture is a very sick one and we must continue to do something about it. Thoughts and prayers and Rev and our ministers and we pray all the time. That's right. But we've got to pray with our feet. And, and you know, Fred, you you know better than any of us, tragically so, that they don't care anymore about white kids than they do about black kids. Even though, you know, African-Americans are more likely statistically to die from gun violence, whether it's police involved or not. Um, But they don't care whether white kids die either. As Reverend Sharpton said, white children, little babies, you know, third graders die 
died in Tennessee and they don't care anymore than they would have cared if they were black kids. So at this point, it really is a question of the majority. And we're talking about two thirds of Americans about gun reform. They don't care what the majority think, white, black or otherwise. They just love guns more than children. They don't care about kids, period. In fact, after the Tennessee shooting, they skipped over thoughts and prayers and they just went to the nonsense. But think about what's happening in Tennessee tonight that the Reverend is at, which is the effort to arm teachers, which, again, gets to why they don't care about kids. You have about 115,000 schools in America. Since Columbine, there have been fewer than 400 school shootings. My daughter unfortunately got caught up in an anomaly in something so rare. It's about 0.3% of all schools is what happened to my daughter. Okay. So the notion that arming teachers for that really, 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 really rare thing is a solution is a lie. All it is is about selling more guns, putting more guns in schools amongst more people who will behave in emotional ways or potentially leave their guns out on a bathroom counter, which has already happened in schools where they've allowed arming of teachers. More children will die if teachers are armed. Absolutely. And meanwhile, uh, it's rare here, uh, but everywhere else in the world, it doesn't happen. Th- this is the school shooting capital of the world. It's the only place where you are, unfortunately, statistically likely to face gun violence at a store, at the Walmart, at your church, at a parade. Literally, the United States is a shooting gallery at this point, And there's a whole class of Americans who really couldn't give a damn. And sorry, I said give a damn in front of two pastors. I apologize. We don't pray about it on Sunday. Reverend Mark Thompson, uh, Reverend Al Sharpton, Fred Guttenberg. Thank you all very much. And thank up you. next on the readout, weaponization. The weapon is, I mean, weaponization committee chair Jim Jordan takes aim at New York City murder rates, opening himself up to some embarrassing fact checks about the much higher murder rates in his own home state. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Today was supposed to be a big day in Wilmington, Delaware, where Dominion's $1.6 billion defamation trial against Fox was supposed to get underway. But Judge Eric Davis announced it was being pushed to tomorrow. He did not provide any reason for the delay, only saying the move was not unusual in such a case. There have been reports that a last-ditch effort to reach a settlement could be the cause. But at this moment, what we know is that the trial should begin tomorrow morning. There was plenty of other drama to fill the void today, thanks to Donald Trump's lackeys on Capitol Hill, who dragged the House Judiciary Committee on a field trip to New York City. 
not to go to Times Square or to catch a Broadway show, but to star, rather, in their own theatrical performance. It was in the form of a field hearing targeting Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg, the man who was leading the criminal indictment of Donald Trump, accusing Bragg of being soft on crime. It is just the latest stunt by Republicans in their efforts to try to discredit Bragg's criminal case against their dear leader. Here in Manhattan, the scales of justice are weighed down by politics. For the district attorney, justice isn't blind. It's about looking for opportunities to advance a political agenda, a radical political agenda. He said that here in Manhattan, the scales of justice are being weighed down by politics, and they are, but only today. In America, being rich, being powerful, even being president of the United States, does not entitle you to violate the law with impunity. Joining me now are two Democrats who attended today's field hearing, Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee of Texas and Congressman Dan Goldman of New York. Um, Representative Goldman, this is your city, um, so I'm going to go ahead and start with you first. What was the, uh, what, what did you, what do you think was gotten out of this hearing today? Uh, very little, because it wasn't a serious conversation about anything that Congress can deal with. It was about a state, lo- a local prosecutor dealing with state law. Congress, of course, deals with federal law. But the clear intention was to create a political stunt to undermine uh, District Attorney Bragg. And they're doing this at the direction and coordination of with Donald Trump. They know that is not a basis to have a congressional investigation. It is a gross abuse of power to use the authority of Congress in support of a private citizen's criminal defense. So they're now trying to dress up this investigation as some investigation coincidentally about the Manhattan district attorney's soft on crime policies, the same person who charged Donald Trump. We got nowhere in large part because we were not talking about the number one problem with public safety in our country, and that's gun violence. And unfortunately, Republicans are unwilling to engage in meaningful policy discussions about gun safety legislation and instead want to attack prosecutors with anti-Semitic tropes and false accusations. Let me read you what the Manhattan DA's office uh, said today. They said, for outside politicians to now appear in New York City on the taxpayer dime for a political stunt is a slap in the face to the dedicated NYPD officers, prosecutors, and other public servants who work tirelessly every day with fact and data, facts and data to keep your home safe. Congresswoman uh, Jackson Lee, um, Mike Johnson um, explained in his own words why he felt this hearing was needed. I'm going to let you all listen to that. Oh, I'm just going to read it then. Representative Mike Johnson said that part of the reason Republicans wanted to hold the hearing uh, in Manhattan is that their constituents were seeing reports of New York City crime on the news and asking them about it. Have you how many of your constituents have asked you about New York City crime? Well, you know, uh, Joy, thank you for having me. The sad part about this is that the victims become the victims again. Uh, my heart goes out to all of the victims who came with the sense that they were going to get help, some kind of relief. Uh, and in actuality, the champions of victims' rights and victim funding are really Democrats. My committee, the Subcommittee on Crime, has been a great proponent of the Victims of Crime Act, modifying it and ensuring it was funded uh, and adding more dollars to it. Uh, I provided uh, victims assistance dollars to law enforcement, as has other members of the judiciary. So the actual uh, reasoning that Congressman Johnson gave was not only nonsensical, uh, one could ask what veracity uh, it had. Uh, because what 
we see in America is one, if they're victims, they want not to be victims. They want us to prevent crime. They want intervention. What we see in America is the head shaking and the tears uh, and the outrage over Nashville, over Louisville, over Alabama, over Uvalde, uh, over uh, Mother Emanuel. This is a pain that I see in my constituents day after day after day, the mounting mass shootings that have occurred and more mass shootings in days in this year because of guns, because of assault weapons. And we cannot seem to get any hearing, any hearing on the question of that. And the other part of this was the absolute uh, unethical and inappropriate attack on a sitting office holder. So much so that District Attorney Bragg and his members of his staff have to get armed security Thank goodness for NYPD, uh, Mayor Adams, who are fighting uh, to do what is right. Uh, but uh, white powder uh, being called an animal uh, by the former president and racial epithets coming toward them. I believe that our job is to do what we can do. We can help victims. We can stop the scourge and the siege of gun violence by the number of guns on the street. We can add more ATF officers to stop gun trafficking, stop ghost guns, store our guns away. I've got a bill, Emily Vaughn bill. So I think what I saw today was a sad example of using people's pain, using their pain to be able to make a mockery of justice. Each one of those witnesses that I could get to, I went and shook their hands to tell them I love them, I feel for them, and we're going back to Washington to fight for victims, to fight for dollars to intervene in gun violence, and to ask Speaker McCarthy to put the assault weapons ban on the floor of the House for up or down vote. Can America ask us to do that? Can I hear the noise and support to put the assault weapons ban on the floor of the House and get a yes or no vote? Uh, Congressman Goldman, I will note that uh, Columbus, Ohio, has a crime rate, uh, a homicide rate um, that is three times that of New York City. Columbus, Ohio, that is where, a place that is represented by Jim Jordan. Um, has that come up in any of your hearings? Absolutely. And let me be very oh. clear. Oh, no. oh sorry. Oh. <laughs> well, absolutely. And let me be very clear. Not only did that come up, but burglary, grand larceny, theft, all of those numbers are down. And the numbers of the cities like Bakersville, where the mayor, excuse me, where the uh, Speaker of the House has come from, has a high murder rate. And of course, cities in, in Ohio, a number of them have high rates, as in Indiana, uh, as in a number of red states, have higher rates of crime, including murder, than New York City. By the way, he is a district attorney for Manhattan. Right. Let's be very clear. Yeah. There are many other boroughs that make up New York City. And C Congressman, I'll give you the last word on this, because this does seem to be really theatrics to try to mount a defense for Donald Trump. Do, are you concerned that Jim Jordan's endgame is to try to actually get some of what the D.A. has so that he can share it with Donald Trump's lawyers? Well, that's certainly what his hope and intent is. That will not happen. Um, and there's this lawsuit by, filed by the district attorney, which I am eager to see play out because I've called for Speaker McCarthy and Jim Jordan to release their communications with Donald Trump and his legal defense team. They, of course, are not listening to me and they've refused, but they will be compelled to disclose that information as part of this lawsuit. So we will find out the degree of their collusion 
collusion and their coordination working with the taxpayer's dime on, in support of Donald Trump's legal defense. It's shameful and it's a gross abuse of power. And we're going to keep fighting to get that information. I will note that the Judiciary Committee also has oversight over the Supreme Court uh, and we will await any hearings on Clarence Thomas's alleged corruption. We'll see if that ever happens. Representative Sheila Jackson Lee and Dan Goldman, thank you both. Still ahead. Thank you. Speaking of weaponizing government, you know who knows a little bit about being the target of a weaponized government? Former Trump attorney Michael Cohen. And he joins me next. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops, on. TVs, streaming. Game console, consoling. Smart thermostat, set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera, oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. House Judiciary Chair Jim Jordan's field trip to Manhattan today comes as his never-ending quest to find any credible evidence of U.S. agencies being politically weaponized has so far been a total dud. But believe it or not, he is getting warmer. There is one New Yorker who does know a thing or two about being the target of a weaponized government and what that actually looks like, who's actually experienced it firsthand. And no, no, it's not Donald Trump getting warmer. It's his former lawyer and fixer, Michael Cohen. Here's what his lawyer, Lanny Davis, told me last month. This is now a federal judge who was told by the Justice Department, by the same prosecutors that coerced him into these uh, guilty pleas, filed papers and said, we're sending him back to prison because he refused to sign a paper, but it had nothing to do with the fact that he was writing a book about Trump. The judge heard the evidence, and the judge said what was told to me by the federal government prosecutors was not true. That's a nice way of saying lying. He was sent back to prison out of vengeance to force him to sign a paper that he wouldn't write a book, and the judge ordered him out of prison. People in the Southern District of New York and the Bureau of Prisons had to have been embarrassed, and Mr. Berman tells us why that happened. It had to come from somebody in Washington. Joining me now is Michael Cohen, former Trump personal attorney, principal of Crisis X, and the host of the Political Beatdown and Mea Culpa podcast. His new book is called Revenge, How Donald Trump Weaponized the U.S. Department of Justice Against His Critics. Talk about weaponization of government. I, I, <laughs> what do you think of this uh, field trip? I mean, I think it's a waste of time. It was a waste of New York taxpayer dollars. Uh, Dan Goldman put it perfectly, uh, as did um, uh, Barbara Lee. She, Congressman uh, co- Sheila Jackson. Sheila Jackson, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, when they turned around, they said this is nothing more than a political stunt. Mm-hmm. That's all that this is. It's a political stunt designed in order for Jim Jordan to show his supreme leader that he's still loyal, he's still in the camp, and he's going to do his bidding. And it's really sad because when they first opened up this subcommittee, um, I was really hopeful, not optimistic, but hopeful 
that he actually really wanted to get to the bottom of the weaponization because the United States is not about Donald Trump. It's not about the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. It's about the United States and the citizens and his responsibility, despite the fact that he's a Republican, is to act for the benefit of all Americans. He is not doing that. And it's a disgrace. And I mean, you have made the point that the federal government was weaponized against you. I mean, you were prosecuted for something you didn't do. Donald Trump did it. You did it for him. You did what you did for him. Um, and then you were put back, as Lanny Davis just said, into jail because you wanted to write a book. Another 15 days of solitary confinement. I mean, bringing it to 51 days in total. This is not normal behavior. This isn't something that you would see in the United States. They, in essence, they made me the first political prisoner held in my own country because I refused to waive my First Amendment constitutional rights. And if that doesn't scare you to death, it should, because you could be next. That's the whole point of everything that I'm doing. Donald Trump is a clear and present danger to the United States and to our democracy. He's now suing you for $500 million. <laughs> yeah, I got served actually today. Uh, I have two great lawyers that are coming on board uh, any any day now. He's We're suing in the you process. for what? Uh, you know, he's suing me for defamation. He's suing me for a mul- just a multi-breaking an NDA, which I don't recall ever signing. I right. don't believe that they've ever been able to produce that document either. But there's all sorts of other issues that are there. But I have two great lawyers that are coming on. And I promise you one thing, they're not like Donald Trump's, you know, crackerjack uh, carnival attorneys. I'm talking about the real deals and he's going to he's going to regret today. Evan Corcoran represented Donald Trump um, and he still didn't represent him in some things, but he's now recused himself from the document theft case, the Mar-a-Lago case. He actually testified to the grand jury in that case. You have been Donald Trump's lawyer. You know the risks of representing this guy and wind up, you know, uh, in the making attorneys get attorney situation. What do you make of the fact that he's trying to pull himself away in at least that part? It seems pretty dangerous to Trump. Yeah. And at the end of the day, he's doing the right thing. He's protecting himself now. Something that I should have done myself. Right. You may remember years ago, I had said to Stephanopoulos, you know, that my loyalty, my first loyalty belongs to my wife, my daughter, my son and my country. Yeah. It looks like uh, Corcoran is taking that advice to heart. If there was a genuine investigation of the weaponization of government, because we talked before this break started, you could legitimately have a good committee investigation on it, going back to what was done to Dr. King, all the way forward to what was done with your, in your case. What would you want to see investigated regarding what happened with you in the Southern District of New York? Well, it's, it's bigger than me. I'm trying to use my specific case for something, again, much larger than me. Right now, the American people don't have faith in our Department of Justice. How could we not have faith that our Department of Justice is acting in the best interest of the American people? How can we not believe that our Supreme Court members are, you know, are not acting on behalf of, you know, their, uh, you know, theocratic, you know, theocratic sort of uh, principles and ideologies? They're supposed to be above that, as is our Department of Justice. But what we, what we have, what have we all really learned? We've all learned that that's not true, that we are all just basically sitting ducks to those who are in power. And if, in fact, like what happened with me and Donald, when he gets you know angry at you and you are the object of his ire, you're in big trouble. Yeah. Do you 
What is your concern if he ever were to be president again? Because obviously you are on his list. And so are you. And so are many others. Anybody that is a critic, look to see what's happening in foreign countries. Look what's happening today, right, where they gave 25 years to, uh, you know, the Russian. Exactly. This is not a joke. And if you think for a second that we're not going to start seeing things like that happening down the road with the Donald Trump or a Donald Trump 2.0, people People are really mistaken. And it's why I constantly say you have to vote. Yeah. It's so important. Fascism is real. Uh, it and, sure and, is. It, and it is really right here. And it's right around the corner. Absolutely. Michael Cohen, thank you. Good to up see. next, you too. Um, ethics questions continue to pile up around Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and his wife, Ginny, based on new reporting about where their income is actually coming from. We'll be right back. It should come as no surprise that Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas doesn't just disregard disclosing his financial transactions. As our friends at Slate note, Thomas's disdain for disclosure is evident in his rulings and his solo dissents on two, in two cases involving disclosure in elections. The first, his lone dissent in part of the Citizens United decision that paved the way for unlimited dark money in our elections. In it, Justice Thomas argued that the court should invalidate mandatory disclosure and reporting requirements. The other was a 2010 case, Doe versus Reed, where Thomas argued that a law requiring names of people signing referendums be made public was harassment, prompting Thomas's real voice on the court at the time, the late Justice Antonin Scalia, to clap back, requiring people to stand up in public for their political acts foster civic courage, without which democracy is doomed. I do not look forward to a society which, thanks to the Supreme Court, even exercises the direct democracy of initiative and referendum hidden from public scrutiny and protected from the accountability of criticism. Meanwhile, today, we got another round of new reports about Thomas's inability to accurately report his finances. According to The Washington Post, for two decades, Thomas has reported rental income in the thousands of dollars from a real estate firm started by his wife, Ginny's family, that doesn't exist, or at least hasn't existed since 2006. But he has reported receiving between $270,000 and $750,000 from the firm since 2006 as rent. It follows ProPublica's reporting about a questionable real estate deal with his billionaire right-wing benefactor, Harlan Crow, which revealed that Crow purchased Thomas's mother's house in 2014, along with two other properties also owned by Thomas and his relatives, which Thomas failed to disclose. CNN reports that Thomas intends to amend his disclosures to reflect the deal under which his mother lives rent free. According to CNN's report, Thomas believed he didn't have to disclose the deal because he lost money, which seems to be a recurring theme that simple financial disclosure forms are just too difficult for Justice Thomas. When he amended his disclosures in 2011, after it was revealed that he hadn't reported $690,000 in wife Ginny's income from 2003 to 2007, He claimed it was a misunderstanding of the filing instructions. After ProPublica first divulged the extent of his globetrotting luxury vacations on his billionaire buddy Crow's dime, Justice Thomas' excuse was that he was advised that that sort of personal hospitality didn't have to be reported. But after getting away with it for literally decades, Clarence Thomas is facing even more and increasingly serious calls for investigation into his failure to properly report his finances. And that is coming up after this break. Thank you. 
Following the latest revelations about Clarence Thomas, the watchdog group crew has filed civil and criminal complaints against Thomas. And Senate Judiciary Committee member Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island has asked for the Justice Department and the attorney general to investigate Thomas's failure to report all the goodies that he's gotten. Democratic Judiciary Chairman Senators met to discuss Justice Thomas today. They say they're planning hearings into his non-disclosures in the weeks coming. Joining me now is the great Ellie Mastal, justice correspondent for the nation. OK, so there'll be hearings. But Justice Department, you and I, I think we feel the same same way about what they're going to do anything. Yeah, I don't feel really great about the Justice Department doing anything. I don't feel really great about this current Senate Judiciary Committee doing anything because the thing that needs to happen right now is for Thomas to have some dignity and resign. He is basically right now saying that he is a Supreme Court justice who is able to tell for certain what you can do with your body and your uterus, whether Thomas, you know, he pulls out the Ouija board, can tell whether or not Thomas Jefferson wanted you to have an AR-15, but he can't fill out a form. Right. He can't fill out a financial disclosure form. It's too hard for him. Maybe he shouldn't have gone to Yale. Maybe he should have gone to St. John's and learned some actual <laughs> law if he's literally sitting here saying he can't fill out a form. And there's a deeper level of hypocrisy here, Joy. Law professor Leah Lippman uh, reminded me of this today. Last term, Justice Thomas ruled against a death row inmate who wanted to bring up evidence of his actual innocence. The defense attorney at the time didn't bring it up. And Thomas said that because the defense attorney didn't bring up the innocence at trial that the inmate couldn't use it now. And so even though there was evidence of his actual innocence, that man is still sentenced to death row. That is the justice. He can't amend it. Literally has a man right now set to die for not putting something in at an earlier date. That's the justice who now says like, actually I'll just amend my financial disclosure forms and it'll be fine. Well, I mean, you know, he's poor. You know, they're different. I mean, as at least Clarence Thomas seems to believe, even though he grew up poor, that poor people and rich people have different for, uh, sets of justice, right? Women have different uh, sets of justice, and we have no rights uh, that uh, men are bound to respect. Some of the people who are defending him are also taking money or also on the payroll. I mean, you've got people who are also in this sort of cycle of grift saying, you know, this ill guy, Ilya Shapiro, he tweeted, oh, this is uh, Harlan Crow, unless he has some business for the court, there's nothing wrong with it. Ilya Shapiro, former professor, tweeted President Biden would pick a lesser black woman to replace Justice Breyer, uh, was fired from Georgetown Law. Other people, you know, who are defending him also get money from this guy, Harlan Clark. I didn't see Ilya's tweet because he blocked me on Twitter, which is a thing that I'm actually quite proud of. Proud of it. The, 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 but yes, the idea that Republicans are pushing right now is that what Thomas did is no big deal. The reason why they're pushing that is because Thomas brings them victory. Yeah. Because they're all in on the same cahoots. Everybody knows that if this was reversed, if Ilya Shapiro, who, as you pointed out, brought, uh, said horrible things about Ketanji Brown-Jackson, if this was reversed, if Ketanji Brown-Jackson was taking yacht trips and failing to financially uh-huh. disclose, we know what these people would be doing to her. We know what these people would be doing to anybody. But it's all part of the same Republican grift. Remember, Thomas is unique in the level of corruption and unethical behavior, but he's not alone, right? Samuel Alito out here having dinner parties with you know guests and leaking the Hobby Lobby decision, John Roberts funneling money through his wife, and Thomas's boy, his hero, Antonin Scalia. Where did Antonin Scalia die? At a hunting lodge, yeah. funded by a rich Republican donor. Yeah. This is all part of the same grift. And, and I think it's also one of the reasons people are questioning the legitimacy of the court period. First of all, Tom, Rob, John Roberts has no control over these people at all. There's no dignity left in the court. Few people respect the court at this point because they do seem to think they live in a different world from the rest of us. They play by different rules. They get to grift all this money. I mean, there is a big difference between saying your wife makes 690000 and zero. Yes. He didn't make an accounting error. He said zero when it was like $690,000. That's not an error. That's an 
omission on purpose. Yes, that is, that is a cover up and, a, and corruption. And that, and they know they can get away with it. That's the, to bring it back to where you started about the DOJ, about the Senate Judiciary Committee. The Republicans know they can get away with it. The Republicans know that nothing bad is going to happen to them. And so why should they follow the rules? There are no consequences for Republicans for breaking the rules. Let's talk about this house, because first of all, you you know, everybody black, you're supposed to buy your mama house. You don't let some friend buy your mama house. You're supposed to buy your mama house yourself. So he lost, but he lost that on the black card a long time ago. But I mean, on the issue of the house itself, the fact that his mom doesn't pay rent, that in and of itself puts that in the Justice Department's field of vision. It should, right? Because that means that's actual graft. 5 U.S.C. 13104 lays out financial disclosures for federal judiciary, including the Supreme Court justices, and having your mama live rent-free in a house that you didn't buy her, but you got one of your friends to buy for her. That is a textbook violation uh, of that law. And of course, he should be investigated and prosecuted for that violation. But, Joy, I always come back to this. There is no mechanism to remove right. a Supreme Court justice other than, impeachment. other than impeachment. So I look to Congress, even this Congress, and say, is there anybody left there that has the dignity and the respect for the institution to actually rid the institution of one of its most corrupt members? Most likely not. Do I, I look to Thomas himself? Remember, Abe Fortas, a former Supreme Court justice, um, was uh, accused of taking $20,000, just $20,000. Um, he was a democratically appointed justice. Um, it was in front of a democratic Congress, unlikely that he was going to be impeached, but Fortas resigned. He had to resign. The yeah. public pressure on him was such that he had to resign. I'm looking for those kind. I'm looking for that kind of thing to happen to Thomas, especially when we get into the point. Remember, we're in April. We're about to hit decision time. Right. We're about to hit a number of 6-3 or 5-4 decisions where Thomas is the deciding vote yeah. on who gets rights and who doesn't get rights. I think we are paying the moral price for having two uh, out of nine members who were credibly accused of you know, sexual harassment all the way to sexual assault. We still don't know how the $700,000 debt of Kavanaugh got paid out, got paid off mysteriously. So much corruption. If so you believe women, most of this doesn't happen. Most of the, believe black women, because I'm trying to tell you. Ellie Mistel, thank you. That is tonight's readout. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC.